Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman with Joe Jordan and intern Tommy Martin. Welcome to the program this afternoon. Coming up this hour, why is it so hard to communicate about climate change? Is it because it's so complicated or because people don't want to hear overwhelming news? Or is it because the topic has become so politicized? What if the future depended on us communicating about this better? On today's program, we hear from two experts in science communications talking about climate change. Edward Maybach, who is a widely recognized expert in public health and climate change communication, and there is such a field. Since 2010, he has been a distinguished professor of communication at George Mason University. We'll also hear from Susan Joy Hassel, who is a climate change communicator, analyst, and author known for her ability to translate science into English, making complex issues accessible to policymakers and the public for more than two decades. All that, plus science quizzes, puzzles, cosmic relief, coming up on Planet Watch today. And I'm with Joe Jordan and Tommy, and we have some news for you this morning, this afternoon, or evening, depending on where you're listening. Who wants to start us off? Well, how about, uh, what do you think, Tommy? You want to go for it? All right. I'll start out with some not-so-happy news. Um, each year, 2 to 16% of hydraulically fractured oil and gas wells spill um, 2 to 16%, excuse me, of hydraulically fractured oil and gas wells spill hydrocarbons, chemical-laden water, hydraulic fracturing, fracturing fluids, and other substances, according to a new study. Um, the an analysis identified 6,648 spills reported across Colorado, New Mexico, North Dakota, and Pennsylvania during a 10-year period. 50% of spills identified in the environmental science and technology article were related to storage and moving fluids via pipeline. And on a lighter note, <clears throat> uh, readers of Dune science fiction novels uh, will appreciate this one. According to Science Daily, researchers from the University of Bristol, Lund University in Sweden and the Royal Ontario Museum have discovered a fossil of a giant extinct bristle worm. <laughs> the worm has the largest jaws ever recorded in this type of creature, reaching, drumroll please, over one centimeter <laughs> in length. Big for a worm. Comparison uh, to living species, which there are some apparently of killer worms, suggests that the animal grew to be a little over, drumroll again, a meter long, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is pretty darn big for a worm. Yeah. This is similar to the fearsome ambush predator, the giant unicid, also known as the bobbit worm. <laughs> Hopefully no relation to Lorena bobbit. Um, they use their powerful jaws to snatch fish and squid, dragging them to their death. It's a little bit of a yellow story there. How long ago did that thing live? I think 400 million years, so don't get too scared. <laughs> and, and probably on some planet in the Dune trilogy. Yeah. Tommy was mentioning a movie called Tremor on the way over here. Uh, <laughs> something like that also. I'm very obscure. Okay. Well, uh, by the way, speaking of Tommy and his story, uh, <clears throat> this whole fracking business, we'll be hearing a lot more about that on this program. In this area here, the Monterey Bay region, we had a big initiative, which won spectacularly by public vote to ban fracking throughout Monterey County. However, Big Oil has prevailed upon the county supervisors down there to stop implementation of that initiative. 
and they say they're studying it. Well, anyway, basically big oil is trying to buy away our democracy, and that is something that everybody needs to get up in arms about. Well, <laughs> not up in arms, but figuratively speaking, um, you know, get get democratic here, get get uh, active, get participating in uh, our so-called democracy. They did. They passed a resolution. They passed a referendum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but now we got to now we have to get it enforced. <laughs> right. So, uh, hey, well, uh, okay, more sort of. Uh, not so pretty news, uh, an influx of pollution, you know, regular old in-your-face air pollution from Asia in the western United States and more frequent heat waves in the eastern United States are responsible for the persistence of smog in these regions over the past quarter century, despite laws curtailing the emission of smog-forming chemicals from tailpipes and factories here. The study traced the increase of ozone in the West to the influx of pollution from Asian countries, including China, North and South Korea, Japan, India, and other South Asian countries. Collectively, that region has tripled its emissions of NOx, i.e. oxides of nitrogen, since 1990. And this is directly related to the next story. You may have heard that uh, next week, President Trump is expected to announce a rollback of pollution emissions rules to control air pollution and climate change. The tailpipe pollution regulations were put forth jointly by the EPA and the Transportation Department under the Obama administration. They would have forced automakers to build passenger cars to achieve an average of 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. Imagine all the money you'd save, compared with about 36 miles per gallon today. The policies were spurring and may continue to spur since they are still in effect for a little while, the development of electric cars. The EPA will also begin legal proceedings to revoke a waiver for California that was allowing our state to enforce the tougher tailpipe standards for its drivers. And that is expected to end up in court. So now, let me get this straight. The EPA, which we have usually known to be our friend protecting us uh, from environmental abuse, they're going to legally proceed against California's stronger, healthier <laughs> regulations that would go farther than the federal government? <laughs> yes, apparently um, California has to ask the federal government for a waiver when it wants to have pollution regulations or any type of environmental protections that go beyond the federal minimum. So that waiver has been very much readily granted over the years. There's been a very cooperative in environment between states. You know, states' rights. If you want to go further, that's your right. <laughs> um, but we'll now the government is on our backs. <laughs> they don't the want EPA us to have our own rules apparently here in California. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see them in court. Apparently, that's the end okay. of that story. And I, then uh, one more researchers. I got one here too. Yeah. Uh, researchers at City College of New York based C-U-N-Y Energy Institute. Uh, I'm not sure. The NY, I'm sure, stands for New York uh, City University, maybe. Uh, announced the development of a novel, low-cost, rechargeable, high-energy density battery that makes the widespread use of solar and wind power possible in the future. It's based on manganese dioxide, MnO2, an abundant, safe, and non-toxic material. And this, uh, if it pans out, is important any kind of storage there are many different ways to store energy and storage is really the big hot topic these days at all these renewable energy and related conferences and uh you know if you can store energy then you don't need the wind to always blow or the sun to always shine uh you can uh, save it up bank it and so that's huge absolutely it's huge 
Uh, well, we, uh, we had a really interesting couple of interviews for you today on Planet Watch. They're all about communicating about difficult, complex, and sometimes overwhelming topics like climate change, like pollution. Um, and there are people who spend a lot of time figuring out how to communicate about these things so that people can, A, understand them because they can be complex scientifically, and B, maybe digest them in a way that they can integrate into their worldview rather than have it clash so much. Imagine the time when, you know, Galileo was acting uh, on his beliefs and, and what he had discovered and how much trouble he ran into. Um, it sometimes feels like we're at that moment again. And here are some people who have gone through many different uh, studies of how people understand information, including when the tobacco uh, research began to show that tobacco caused cancer and how long it took people to finally act on that knowledge. They are learning from those experiences with public health information um, and applying it now to climate change and learning some pretty interesting things. So the first person we're going to hear from, and, and Joe and I interviewed him at the recent climate conferences, Ed, Edward Maybach. He is a professor at George Mason University. He also comes out of the public health field. So uh, let's give a listen to that interview and we'll be right Just in back. case you're interested, George Mason University is sort of in the, uh, it's in Fairfax County in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia. Julianne Goodman along with Joe Jordan. I'm here with Dr. Edward Maybach. He's a university professor and director of George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication. Very happy to have him with us here on Planet Watch. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for being here. You have done some really interesting studies about how to mobilize large populations when it comes to getting them to do something different. Tell me about that work and what you've learned um, working with large groups of people. When you say large groups of people, you mean all Americans, for example, yes? I think I do. And then you did something in India, right? So, well, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, let me start by saying I'm a public health professional. This is my core training. And, and in public health, we understand that it's really important for when people are at risk in terms of having threats to their health, um, it's really important that they understand those threats. Um, and it's really important that we help them do whatever is possible in order to, to reduce those threats. But as it turns out, those are two distinct but interrelated challenges. The first challenge is helping people understand the risks that they face. That's a communication challenge. The other challenge is helping them change their behavior. That's what you asked me about. Um, that isn't really so much a communication challenge as a, a behavior change challenge. Um, and we have two different ways of working depending on which of those things we're trying to do, help people understand their risks or help people change their behaviors. So let's talk about one and then the other. Um, sure. In terms of climate change, is it hard to get people to understand the risks when they're not personally feeling them? Yeah, climate change is the, the perfect storm in terms of um, the, the, um, a difficult problem to understand meeting a human brain that isn't wired to think about long-term, slow, incremental, but yet potentially catastrophic risks. Um, and so as it, you know, what we've seen over the past 10, 10 or 20 years um, is some large changes about in terms of the way Americans understand climate change. Unfortunately, the, the biggest change that we've seen is that this has become a politicized issue, which has that had the consequence of driving 
um, liberal Americans' views of climate change in one direction and driving conservative Americans' views of climate change in the exact opposite direction. 20 years ago, liberal and conservative Americans saw this issue in more or less equivalent ways. Today, we couldn't be more different. How do you depoliticize something once it's already politicized? Is there any way to take the fuse out of it? Um, it's always harder to change people's minds than to help them understand um, something from the get-go. So yes, we're in a difficult situation, but there are things we can do to help depoliticize the, the situation. One of those things is that most Americans think that there's a lot of disagreement about uh, a lot of disagreement among climate scientists about whether or not human-caused climate change is happening. The reason they think that is because there's been a very well-funded, largely fossil fuel industry-driven initiative to, to confuse the public on this incredibly important point. The reality is that more than 97% of climate scientists are long since convinced, based on the evidence, that human-caused climate change is happening. Um, yet, when we ask people to tell us, well, what you know, what percent of the, the experts do you think are convinced that human-caused climate change is happening? On average, they tell us about 60%. So one of the ways that we found that we can depolarize public understanding of the issue is by providing people with, um, with the fact that more than 97% of the pub, uh, of climate scientists are in fact convinced that human-caused climate change is happening. Um, and we have to attribute that to somebody that they will trust. Um, as it turns out, there are lots of trustworthy organizations in America who are more than happy to communicate that happy fact. Um, and when they do, the reason why I say it depolarizes public opinion, because it has a bigger impact on conservative Americans than on liberal Americans, because conservative Americans are the ones who have been deceived to the greatest degree about the scientific consensus. People don't like to be fooled, and do you think one thing you could do is show them how they've been tricked? Is that something, um, like you take off the magician's hat and show them that there's actually an intentional misinformation campaign by the fossil fuel industry to bring out fake news or are they just camped there and, and is it waste of time? Do we need to move on to the people who are more in the middle? You're absolutely right. People do not like to be fooled. Um, I, in, earlier in my life, I had the privilege of working on something called the Truth Campaign. It was an anti-smoking campaign targeting the nation's teens to try to show them that they were being fooled. The Marlboro Man and, and the people funding him were fooling them. Um, and it was um, in I believe it is the most successful public health campaign in American history. Rates of tobacco use among teens dropped from the mid-30s down into the teens. Um, and it really was driven by the fact that when we showed them the ways that they were being fooled, that they were being made chumps by the man in the tobacco industry, they really felt strongly the need to stand up to that. My colleague, former Congressman Bob Inglis, um, is currently, um, he's a, one of the people featured in a current documentary called Merchants of Doubt, which is trying to do exactly the same thing, show Americans how we have been fooled by the fossil fuel industry, which in, very interestingly is actually in cahoots, or at very least learned a lot from the tobacco industry and from their successes in fooling the American people for so many decades. I saw that movie and I show it to my students in my mass media class and the biggest take home is that um, people kind of 
can be fooled easily, but once you take the mask off, as you're saying, they get pretty mad and they want to know the truth. So um, that was a great film, and Bob Inglis was quite the hero because he was speaking everyday people's language, and he was himself had been doubting climate change, but he kind of flipped over once he re-read the actual science of it. So he was open-minded enough to have his mind changed. Um, and do you, know, do you know how that happened? His son, his 18-year-old son, um, he, Bob was running, he had been three terms in the Congress representing their district in South Carolina. He decided to run for Senate. His eldest child has, was now of age to vote. He said, son, I presume I can count on you, your support. And his son, not missing a beat, said, dad, you can, but only if you clean up your act on the environment. So Bob got himself um, put on the Congressional Science Committee. He went down to Antarctica with an NSF expedition um, with climate scientists, and he really immersed himself in the, the truth. And he's never been willing to back away from that sense. Sadly, he didn't get reelected. Um, he he didn't get elected to the Senate. He did get reelected three more terms in the Congress, um, and in 2010 he. Um, he got, there's now a, a, a verb, he got Inglist, um, Tea Party candidates, even though Bob is quite uh, quite conservative and proudly so, he, he got ousted in his primary by Trey Gowdy. Hey, there's a follow-up uh, <clears throat> to that Merchants of Doubt movie um, that uses all the same uh, cool visuals and everything, you know, magicians doing tricks on people, only this one is like what I would call the closest thing there is to evil out there in the world today, namely this new movie, Climate Hustle. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Mark Morano, who's infamous as, you know, a big de supposed debunker of climate science and climate scientists, uh, does this really slick job. And uh, even as a climate scientist myself, it's hard to necessarily, uh, you have to go through the whole thing with a fine-toothed comb to find all the stuff in there. They, they obscure it very cleverly. And anyway, but the thing is, I got a posse of people together, had an interesting experience. We went over to watch this thing at a public event in town, and there were a whole lot of Trump supporters there. And the thing that really struck me as good news was that those Trump supporters, they were very concerned about regular old pollution, you know, in-your-face air and water pollution, all that. They want, they seriously want to do something about it to help the world. They just don't believe the climate change stuff. But I mean, there's huge common ground there as a starting point. So relating to those people, I'm wondering what you can uh, say about something like that and yeah, that movie in general and so on. Yeah, our, our most recent research report, we, had, we conducted, um, let me take a step back. I'm part of a research team where every six months we do a nationally representative survey of the American people, adults 18 plus, um, and we conducted our most recent survey the week after the election um, in which Mr. Trump was made 45. Um, what we decided recently to analyze the findings only from people who told us they voted for Mr. Trump. Um, assuming they were the, the Americans who were least likely to accept that human-caused climate change is happening and least likely to support policies that will help us deal with the problem. What we actually found is that at least half of Trump supporters uh, understand that climate change is happening, and the majority of them, actually a solid majority of them, support a variety of different proposals, policy proposals, to deal with it, including they do not want to see Mr. Trump withdraw us from the Paris um, Climate Accord. 
How about that? Well, I wonder if he reads the polls that you put out. I, I couldn't <laughs> answer that question. Maybe his smart, you know, advisors would. Uh, so, in closing, um, what are some behavioral changes you would like to see as a public health professional on this other question? You know, you've been talking about the information shifting ideas and thoughts. Of course, actions follow thoughts. And going back to the tobacco story and these other successes, what have you seen, you know, in terms of mass change of, of behaviors? What can you say about that? When we ask concerned Americans what they are doing about climate change, they tend to give us answers that are virtuous, but not necessarily effective. Um, so I'll give an example. People tell, almost inevitably, people tell me first that I'm really doubling down my effort to recycle everything I can. And I really do believe that's virtuous. And, and, and I also believe that our communities, our, the municipal uh, waste officials in our communities can make it easier for us to do that, right? Every American deserves curbside recycling um, and uh, you know, at a minimum. But the actions that are most impactful, the actions that every American who is concerned about this issue should be taking um, are political actions. They should be letting their elected representatives at every level of government know that this is an important issue to me. And I, ex if you want my vote again, I expect you to do the right thing. I expect you to make sure that you are, we in our community, we in our state, and we in our nation are doing everything we can to avert the worst of climate change. That is the most important action people can take. Um, there's a second additionally important action that people can take, and that is that ultimately, globally, the most important thing we can accomplish as humanity is accelerating the inevitable transition to clean renewable energy and away from dirty fossil fuels. Um, and most Americans can do something about that personally. I personally pay a relatively minor additional you know, increment on my monthly utility bill that allows me to purchase 100% clean energy from wind. Um, I realize I'm, I'm blessed that I can afford that little tiny extra amount each month, and many Americans can't. Um, but what they can do is they can, for example, let their public utility commission know that they expect this to be not, not just an option that costs us more, but an option that all of us are, are getting. So both our actions as consumers, particularly with regard to clean energy, and our actions as citizens with regard to letting our elected and appointed officials know we care deeply about this. Those are the most important actions that any concerned American can take. They seem like things that would not be outside the realm of a possibility to do either. Um, you're talking about phone calls and, and, and political pressure, and you're talking about making decisions about utilities. What about this idea that if um, a large number of people stopped eating beef, in particular, we might impact methane? I've heard in a couple of assertions and a couple of studies, and I'm not an expert in any means, that that could also be a behavioral shift on the part of many, many people who are already consuming lots, uh, to reduce that, that that could have a huge impact. What do you think to, about that behavioral change? Is that harder than driving less? So this is a really great question you're asking. Um, I personally have been a vegetarian since I was 20, after my 365 days of eating ground beef in every possible way it, it could be prepared, and I realized this is not <laughs> the way, and I just decided to make a clean break. Um, but when I talk to students, for example, at my university, and I bring up 
the possibility of leading, eating less beef as, as an option that's available to them to reduce their own carbon footprint. And I, I work in a, I, I teach in uh, George Mason University, Fairfax, Virginia. It's not like this is cattle country. Um, nevertheless, I inevitably get the response from many of my students that what I'm suggesting to them is almost un-American. So something about Americans' relationship to beef tends to be particularly sensitive. So while as both as a public health professional and, and as somebody working to avert the worst of climate change, I am all for eating less beef, um, but I am also sensitive enough to realize that's, that's, some, that's, that's a behavior that just many Americans aren't willing to consider at this time. And going back to the idea, you know, that people felt like it was being a cowboy to smoke cigarettes, that changed and so could this. You know, it's just, we think it's American to drive a big old car too, and that's really damaging. So we might need to shift what we think of, what, where we're attached to connecting things unrelated to really living here. Uh, to our identity as Americans. And you know, uh, one other angle on that would be just the personal health effects. So that's one way of engaging people on that and just phasing down one's eating of beef rather than, you know, quitting cold turkey, so to speak. <laughs> cold beef. Well. And, and Joe, if I could just comment on, briefly on that. So the most important thing we can do to limit global warming is accelerate the transition to clean renewable energy. And the beauty of doing that is it will have immediate benefits for our on our health. Um, dirty fuel pollutes our air and our water. Um, and while accelerating that transition will, in fact, help limit climate change, it will also give us cleaner air and cleaner water today so we can all live more healthfully. Well, Edward Maybach, I really appreciate you being here on Planet Watch. We're so happy to have you, and thanks for dropping by at the Climate Conference. Thank you. Edward Maybach, George Mason University. Very interesting uh, perspective there from a public health official who has uh, tried to change behavior on a number of things, tobacco being one of them, and now is working on getting our behavior around climate change to change, as well as our thoughts and the way we talk about it. What did you think of that interview, Joe? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Uh, one thought that came to my mind I've had over the years uh, I have sort of friendly arguments with various friends about this. I say that, you know, we don't even actually need climate change in order to argue for its solution. In other words, you, you, you can argue for the solutions to climate change without even invoking climate change. There are all these other things like in-your-face air pollution and war and jobs and so on that uh, are bound up with uh, doing things right. And, you know, uh, we've kind of given people this political football to kick around and distract everybody and, you know, distract our so-called leaders from doing the right things because they say, oh, I don't believe in climate change. It's all a hoax. Well, hey, you need to do these things that would, by the way, solve that problem or at least greatly mitigate that problem and, and solve a whole bunch of other problems, too. So... Really good point. And when we're talking about renewables and the price of energy going down, if... if three people were given the choice between a polluting kind of energy that costs more and a clean energy that costs less, how many people would choose the dirty energy? Um, you know, even if you don't quote unquote believe in climate change, how many people would choose to pay more for something that was proven to make our air and our lungs unhealthier? Um, when I see the rollback of air pollution regulations I don't think that's the mandate that people voted for when they voted for Donald Trump. I don't think there's one person, if you ask them, do you remember Los Angeles in 1968? 
And if you ask them what it was like there and to look around the air and you see the pictures where you could not see the buildings in front of you and your eyes burned and compare that to now, which is a lot better. It's not perfect, but it's way better. Which person would want to go back backwards in time and go back there? Can't imagine one would and whether or not they had any kind of belief in global warming. And those are pretty connected, those two activities. At least 30% of them are because that's where the emissions piece comes in. Yeah, the big trick is going to be to get the, the true cost of dirty energy reflected in its price, which it's not now. I mean, we have financial incentives with the standard economics to pollute. Well, it shouldn't be that way. If you actually had a price on carbon and other pollutants, then... <laughs> The market, you know, people's common sense, the way they spend their money would would head things in the right direction. And, and so that is something that has to happen. And there are some innovative ways to do that, which we will be covering on future ones of these programs. One of which I'll just go ahead and say right now, Citizens Climate Lobby and their whole effort to get a price on carbon. We will delve more into that uh, in the future. They're really beginning to become a, a force on national and international politics. I just read a really interesting article which I can post later on our Climate Watch page which we have on Facebook. If you go to Planet Watch Radio on Facebook you'll find us and you can also send us a question through email by by emailing us now and we'll hopefully pick it up before the end of the show at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Again, radioplanetwatch all one word at gmail.com Tommy is checking those the article I was going to mention talked about this new um, presidential decree that says they have to get rid of two regulations for every new one they create. And um, the problem with that is it's only based on the cost of regulations as opposed to the benefits. And, you know, when Reagan came in, the deregulation fervor, he recognized that certain regulations had costs. It cost the car industry quite a lot to um, curtail tailpipe emissions, but the benefits outweighed it because so many, and this was actually, the example was unleaded gas. Taking the lead out of gasoline um, caused so many more children to not have lead in their blood levels and therefore to not have their IQs damaged and their health damaged, they decided it was worth the cost. So these cost benefits might seem kind of cruel, but at least they were weighing the benefit of the regulation against the cost and not simply looking at the dollar cost to an industry. They were looking at the cost to our health and the benefits to our health, which I would hope, not just us, but the animals we share the world with, I would hope they would figure into these regulations by the EPA. Yeah, and a related uh, fact, which uh, I will point out now that you never hear, and it needs to get out there, is that the states in this country that have been the most regulated environmentally, guess what? Their economies are the best. They are doing the best. They are the most regulated environmentally and they have the most thriving economies. I defy anybody to deny that truthfully and I can support that. You know, we should have a discussion about that later, but uh, it's a very interesting, revealing, important fact that you just do not hear. And one of the things I think we're going to hear in the next interview with Susan Hassel is using the word protection where regulation is often used, which our minds say, well, that's a bad restrictive thing. But when you talk about protecting someone, you're talking about protecting their health and the health of their environment. So when we talk about environmental protection, that's the name of the agency. It's not the environmental regulation 
agency. So um, let's get that straight right off the bat. Susan Hessel was a big hit at the climate conference at UC Santa Cruz last weekend, and she talked to us when we were there about how to talk about the subject. And I think you'll enjoy her interview, which is coming up next. We'll be right back after that to share some tips and quizzes with you. And remember to email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, and I'm excited to be talking with Susan Hassel. She is an expert in communicating about climate change, something that the world needs greatly right now. You had a TED Talk, um, I believe in Montana, where you talked about why we're not communicating very well about a very important subject. Can you give me the five-cent tour of, A, why we're having so much trouble talking about something so important to us? Yeah. I think one of the main reasons is that we have a huge partisan divide on the issue of climate change. It's really not a question about the science. It's a, it's a tribal divide and a question that's very, very much about politics and ideology. And I think that's probably at the heart of the communication challenge. So how do we get around that? Well, I think there are lots of ways around it. Because, you know, good communication is really a conversation more than a lecture. And I think if we had more of a conversation where we could connect on values that we all agree on, that we would probably make a lot more progress. So instead of starting out by talking about climate change when we know that that's something that's going to drive a wedge with certain audiences, we all want clean air and water. We all want to leave a better world for our children. We all want to increase economic growth and create good jobs. And so if we start there, everybody likes clean energy. Why don't we start right with the solutions? And you know, eventually we get around to talking about human-induced climate change, but it doesn't have to be the first thing out of our mouths. So we have different audiences, right, that, that might be hearing things. Um, scientists are not always used to communicating straight to the public because of their training. So tell me about, um, do they all need intermediaries or translators, or do we, can we train scientists to speak directly to the public? Well, I've actually spent a lot of the last 25 years doing just exactly that, training scientists to be more effective communicators, to speak without jargon, to avoid words, using words that mean different things to scientists than they do to the public, to let their humanity show. But scientists are not the best messengers for all audiences. They're good messengers for some audiences, but other people, their pastor might be a better messenger or a business person. Right, the business case for action on climate change is tremendous. We know that climate change is bad for business and we know that clean energy is good for business. There's a tremendous economic case to be made. We know we're spending big bucks right now on the impacts of climate change. We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to pump water out of the streets of Miami at high tide. We're spending lots of taxpayer dollars to fight giant fire fires, wildfires, that are getting worse because of climate change. That takes money away from other things that we would rather be doing with that money. So climate change is costing us real money now. And on the other hand, clean energy, the solutions to climate change, are great for the economy. Tremendous job creation in solar and in wind. And so there's also a you know, real race on right now globally for clean energy development. The revolution is underway and the race is on. And the question is, do we want to buy solar panels and wind turbines from China or do we want to sell them to them? And right now they're ahead of us. So that's something that we can, again, all agree on and something that we want to do. So 
business leaders, economic leaders might be better messengers for some of those aspects or engineers than climate scientists. How do you, what do you make of um, the people who are now in charge of the EPA and also um, you know, Secretary of State and these various roles that are deeply, deeply um, ingrained in the fossil fuel industry? It's being shown all over the place that Pruitt and Tillerson are both, um, you know, they've been there their whole lives pretty much. How do we deal with the potential for misinformation coming out of the highest levels of government? And how do we counter that? Because these are supposedly people who are supposed to be speaking officially. Well, it's, it's certainly very distressing to have someone like Scott Pruitt, who you know spent his life very cozy with the fossil fuel industry, now running the EPA. I mean, he's sued EPA many times. Um, but here's, here's one way I think we can fight it. So Scott Pruitt said during his confirmation hearing that nobody really knows how big the human influence on climate is. Well, that was fake news. That was misinformation. And so my colleague, climate scientist Ben Santer, went on Late Night with Seth Meyers just two nights ago and did an excellent job of refuting that. He said, it's not true. We do know human activity is by far the dominant influence that is causing climate change. We study it. We use fingerprint analyses. He explained how it's done. And he said, you know, as a scientist who spent my entire career doing this, I can't just go in my office and keep my head down when I hear people saying things that aren't true. I've got to stand up and tell the truth. So I think that kind of refutation is important. And that's where scientists really can come in, scientists that are good communicators like Ben Sander. Yeah, I got one for you, Susan. Uh, I've met Ben Sander and talked with him uh, when I was working at NASA Ames. He came visiting from uh, Livermore, I think, is where he works. And uh, he's got some real war stories to tell. And this leads into my question, actually, about how scientists can better communicate. I kind of think storytelling is something that everybody can relate to. And if scientists, scientists have great stories, if they could just get into telling them to regular folks more, that might go a long way. What do, you, what do you think of that? Well, absolutely. It's one of the things I teach when I teach scientists how to communicate more effectively. We practice storytelling in these workshops because they, are, they do have a great story to tell about their own lives and their own careers, about the work that they do. Uh, you know, Ben tells the story of how we understand the human influence on climate, how we know, because it's like a fingerprint that the lower atmosphere gets warmer, but the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, actually gets cooler. And that is evidence, it's a fingerprint, that the warming is caused by the buildup of heat-trapping gases from human activities and not by something natural like the sun. So Ben's a great storyteller, Michael Mann is another great storyteller, and so we do have some scientists who are doing a much better job of telling these stories. Now, there are other good storytellers. Some of them are people of faith. Some of them are city planners or coastal planners or people who work in energy and electric utilities. And they're dealing with these kinds of things. They have stories to tell. People in the health, public health arena have stories to tell about how climate change is affecting our health now and how it will affect it more in the future and what we can do about it. I have an interesting um, angle on this, and I've read a lot of George Lakoff, and he talks about confirmation bias and emotional word choices. What kind of words um, are most effective in cutting through what is a natural human instinct, I think, is to not want to hear that we're in deep trouble? Um, how do you get around those kinds of blockades that our brain will put up regardless of how much we want to save ourselves? Yeah. 
Well, I'm also a big believer in the notion that words matter and that we have to choose them very carefully because words have emotional content. And so, for example, I sometimes hear people say the world's warming and we're to blame. And I cringe. I never use the word blame because blame is a very negative word. We didn't do it on purpose. I say the world is warming and we're responsible because responsibility is a good thing. That's the kind of people we are. We take responsibility for our actions and we can do something about it. So that's one, just one simple example. I also sometimes hear scientists say, oh, the world is warming, it's gonna warm a lot more and it's inevitable. And I hate that word inevitable because you know what? The future lies in our hands. The choice is ours. Whether we get a little more warming or a lot more warming depends totally on what our emissions are. So it's not inevitable. Sure, a certain amount is in the pipeline. But really, whether things turn out well or badly is in our hands. So that's important. Another example, I think, on word choice is that it's very important, and George Lakoff says this, not to buy into the framing of your opponents. So people who are against regulation are big talking about regulation, regulation. Instead of using that word, I say protection, because those regulations are there to protect us, to protect our health, to protect our future. So there's a lot of places where choosing the right word is very important, and I've spent a lot of, a lot of my career talking and writing about that, and I mention it quite a bit in my TED Talk, and I've published articles about it as well. Another angle on that, by the way, is uh, talking about sort of the opposite of the negative connotation of regulation, i.e. money down the drain for these onerous regulations. How about the money to be made big time with the solutions to these problems? You know, uh, even the most so-called conservative people can relate to money to be made. And, you know, I actually was kind of wondering, okay, all this climate communication stuff, where are we, you know, if those in power don't get it yet. Uh, part of my answer is many, many, many millions of people like this new course that Ram, Ram Nathan is talking about everybody getting involved in. But, but the message about the money, to, so it's not regulation, it's money making. <laughs> How about that as sort of a meme or a theme? Yeah. Well, certainly the money to be made in solutions to climate change in clean energy is a very important thing to talk about. And I think with some audiences, I skip right over the problem of climate change and I go straight to solutions because the solutions are a place where everybody agrees. Everyone wants the job creation. Everyone wants the economic growth and the technological development. Everyone wants to lead the world. And so that's what clean energy can be for us if we make that choice. Also, things that we do to adapt to make ourselves more resilient also save us money if we do them proactively in advance rather than wait for the disaster to happen and then have to be reactive. So in both mitigation, that is reducing emissions to reduce future climate change and adaptation, changes we can make to become more resilient to climate change, there is money to be made. And let's not leave that money on the table. We um, have just a little bit more time, but I wanted to ask you, um, you know, in the era of uh, social media where people's opinions can concentrate in little bubbles and people don't want to talk across ideological lines, how do you suggest everyday people engage one another in this dialogue? People who are concerned, perhaps engaging uh, people who may not vote or think like them, but still want to survive into the future and want their grandkids to live a nice life. So this is very important. I think in person is the best way to have that conversation and to have it be a conversation rather than a lecture. 
find out where you agree. Start with the places that you agree. And, you know, usually everybody wants to leave a better world for their kids, right? Everybody wants good, healthy economic growth. Start there and then have a conversation. Try and understand what they care about and talk about it from that point of view. We do need to have this conversation. There's really a spiral of silence around climate change. People don't talk about it as much as they should. And partly it's because they're afraid that other people don't agree with them. We need to get over that and we need to have the conversation. We also need to encourage that conversation to take place much more in the media. Because the media may not tell you what to think, but they tell you what to think about. And that it's not climate change because you don't see enough stories about climate change. So we need the media to be doing a better job of not only telling the climate change story, but connecting the dots between things that are happening, extreme weather events, for example, extreme heat waves, heavy downpours, the, the increase in fire season that I mentioned, rising sea levels and coastal flooding, connecting the dots between those things and climate change and helping people to understand the interaction between them. So I think there's a lot we can do to increase people's understanding and awareness. And we have to move forward and we have to move forward together. This problem is too big to solve voluntarily one person at a time. We need economy-wide change. People intuitively know that, that just by changing their own light bulbs, that's not going to be enough. Collective action is what need, it's what's needed. So forward together. Thank you so much. This has been great. And on, here on Planet Watch, we're doing our part to communicate about this very important issue. And you've just helped us frame it even uh, better as we go forward. So thank you for your time, Susan Hessel. Thanks, Susan. You're very welcome. Susan Hussle speaking to us at a recent climate conference at UC Santa Cruz. This is Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin. And one of the other things that she mentioned in her talk up there at the university was that they were going to work with uh, weathermen, trusted weather forecasters who could connect some of what is really connected to the bigger picture. And um, also speaking with physicians, family physicians, about the public health implications of a warming world, especially for people who are working out of doors. They're uh, probably at the biggest risk um, in higher heat events as suffering from climate change. So um, those are some things they're working on. We appreciate you tuning in today. We did have someone emailing us, so let's try to answer that and get to some of our quizzes and trivia before we have to close. Tommy. Yeah, we have a question from Michael. If oil subsidies are included in what the uh, what is the real price of gas per gallon at the pump? And maybe Joe, you could answer that for us. My quick hard summary on that is a lot more than what we're paying. I mean, I don't know, just a swag estimate. Somebody's wild ass guess. S W A G. I don't know, ten bucks a gallon. Uh, I mean, heck, even if it was five or six bucks a gallon, most of most people would completely stay away from the gas pump except that they can't so hey this that's is where <laughs> policy comes in and electric yeah. cars vehicle development comes in because we need an alternative we cannot just cut ourselves off immediately and have gas go that high or truly the economy would crash um so we need a transition we need a smooth transition right and speaking of smooth transitions <laughs> since i was just talking about numbers that i didn't actually have authoritatively at hand uh we had a quiz last time which i should uh last two times actually uh, i was talking about the great uh, indian mathematician ramanujan who pointed out that the number 1729 1729 is the smallest integer that can be expressed in two different ways as the sum of two cubes 
So last week, I sort of answered the riddle, well, what is that number? And it's 1729. But then I left hanging for this week. Okay, listeners, tell me what those two different ways are of decomposing that number as the sum of two cubes. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. If you want to still work on it on your own, you hadn't heard this before, then plug up your ears for the next 10 seconds. One way to do it is 9 cubed plus 10 cubed. That's 729 plus 1,000. And the other, drum roll, is 1 cubed plus what? 1 cubed plus 12 cubed, which is 1 plus 1728. And that also equals 1729. So there you go. I bet you were all feverishly working that out in the 10 <laughs> seconds he gave you. Thanks, Joe. Some of us aren't as fast at math as you are, but I appreciate the teaser. It's good for our brains. Gives them a workout. So um, any other math quiz for next week, or maybe not even math quiz? What about a science Well, yeah, twister? Th there's actually another loose end uh, from something that I talked about last week, which was that have you ever noticed how the cooler half of the year, cooler in the northern hemisphere, that is, uh, the winter half of the year isn't really half of the year. It's actually several days shorter, like, you know, four or five days shorter than the summer, the warmer half of the year. Uh, in other words, from f the September equinox around through the December solstice to the March equinox is actually about four or five days shorter than the other way around the calendar. And I mentioned one reason last week was that February, which is in that cooler part of the year, is quite a bit shorter. But I forgot to say, or didn't mention, and it's good because now i got something else to talk about this time. There's another thing. Have you ever noticed this? And this is appropriate because we're about to come upon the spring equinox or the vernal equinox, the March equinox. Have you ever noticed that whereas the solstices are almost always on the 21st of their months, the equinoxes are not? The spring equinox is on the 20th or even the 19th of March, and the fall or autumnal equinox is on the 22nd or even 23rd of September. So there's another couple extra days that uh, are added on to the warmer half of the year and taken away from the colder half. I would vote yes on that. <laughs> You've noticed that? I would just vote yes because I like warm weather. <laughs> oh, okay. The warmer part of the year is longer. Yeah. And uh, I'll just tell you, uh, and we can discuss it more sometime. The reason for this is, is basically because our orbit around the sun is not a circle. We are at varying distances from the sun at different times of year. And we're actually closest to the sun in early January. And we're 4 million miles farther away from the sun in early July. So we move slower around the sun during the summer months when we're farthest from the sun. And we move faster around the sun during the this time of year when we're closer to the sun. And that relates to these things about the where the equinoxes and solstices fall on the calendar. So anyway, Very cool. our orbit is an ellipse. So that has to, that's what's behind all that. Okay, that solves that one. Um, here's a did you know, and I, this is apropos to absolutely nothing, but I thought it was kind of you know, interesting. We were talking earlier about cows and methane. Well, there are more chickens on earth than there are humans. So how many chickens above a certain number would that mean? At least 7.3 billion or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that's a, you got, that's a lot of a lot chicken of nuggets. This has been Planet Watch. We so appreciate you tuning in today. We'll be back again next Sunday with an interview with a fellow who's turning all the UCs all over California very, very green. We'll also be talking with Jerry Brown's policy advisor about the environmental situation in California. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Thanks for tuning in today. And keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe signing off for now.
When it comes to nurturing innovation, how important is it that a new idea encounters resistance? I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. Innovation is how one person convinces another person to do something. Matt Wisnowski is an associate professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech. Innovation is how a person convinces an investor to provide them with the money to spread their product or their idea. And I think if that dialogue does not include as many voices as possible, and in particular doesn't include the voices that are often not taken into account, then it will be less effective as a consequence. So when a new idea comes about, it's going to encounter resistance. Either people will say, well, I don't need to use that because I have an existing solution that is better than that, or I don't want to change. If an innovation is fundamentally about change at its core, then asking people to change can be difficult. So does resistance help an idea become better? Not always, but I think it's an important aspect of how ideas come into the world. If you think something is just going to work straight away, you're sorely (laughs) mistaken. And that through that critical feedback, you can start to understand why people don't like something or why uh, they do something the way that they do and why a particular innovation is needed or not needed. Innovation is about kind of constant reflection and adaptation. And so if you're not taking that feedback from people who are resistant to an idea, then you're likely to fail in your product, your idea, whatever. We'll hear more about innovation in future programs. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.